A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and uh, this episode is about Reb Shmuel Rizovsky, a bonus episode. Just have um, uh, in Mishpacha magazine, in honor of Shavuos, Davi Safir and uh, myself have uh, contributed a, an article about Rav Shmuel and his time spent in the United States uh, during his unfortunate uh, illness, which took his life. Um, so that's a very interesting article, and we had the privilege of speaking to a lot of people about Rav Shmuel the great Panovich Rosh Hashiva, in preparation for this article. So you definitely want to check it out. But um, what happened was is that there was just happened to be many more stories that just didn't fit in, and uh, thought I'd just uh, it's on on my mind anyway, and we'll talk about it a little bit um, in honor of Shavuos, a little uh, bonus for all our wonderful listeners out there about Reb Shmuel Rizovsky. Um, right after Shavuos, I'll be um, about a week after Shavuos, we'll be going on a trip to Morocco. So if you'd like to join me uh, on that trip, you can definitely do so and be in touch with ENS Tours, who's organizing the trip. Um, it should be a wonderful, interesting, exploring Jewish history of Morocco and will be a really, really high level, uh, exciting, great accommodations and everything. ENS Tours, they're the best. So email them at info at ensTours.com and we're hoping to have you join us. Um, so like I said, it's some additional stuff which didn't fit into the article. Perhaps will be enough more than one episode also. Another installment on Rupshmul Rozovsky. Sometime I had the privilege of speaking to some people who were close with him and they shared some great stories and memories. There's also the book, his biography, uh, which is which is pretty good. Actually a well done biography and Hebrew, it's been translated to English. Before that, there was a, recently an episode on Neri Yisrael, the Yeshiva Neri Yisrael in Baltimore. Some stories about that. It was actually part three of, uh, of uh, a series on Neri Yisrael. And I got a very nice feedback, which I want to read you. One of the letters I got, which is very interesting and about uh, a, a somewhat um, uh, some, a figure who should be more well-known, or David Krongles, the Mashkiach of Neri Yisrael for many years, so I just want to uh, uh, read a, a listener shared some uh, memories. Um, 
I recently listened to the third installment of the Nair Yisrael series. I wanted to share with you a different side of Rav David Kranglis Zatzal. In, in the lecture, Rav David came off as stern and serious. This is true. However, he was also a loving, fatherly figure as well. I knew a student who attended the Mechina in the years 1968 to 1970. He was expelled for, be, for being a little too gishmak. I'll leave it at that. For many years, he was not an observant Jew, but Baruch Hashem, he is now fully observant, committed Jew, and makes it to Dafyomi every day. However, when he talks about the time he spent in Mechinas Ner Yisrael, and particularly Rabbi David Kranglas, his face lights up like a child in a candy store. He was in charge of bringing wine to Rabbi David for Kiddush on Friday night, on Shabbos day, excuse me, in the dining hall. Rabbi David Kranglas would schmooze with him then and throughout the week whenever they crossed paths. He was not even in the yeshiva. He was only in the mechina, of which Rabbi David was not the mashkiach. He would always say with a big smile on his face, I was just a little guy, but Rabbi David always had time for me. He spoke very highly of the Rosh Yeshiva and Rav Tendler as well. Somehow, they kicked him out of the yeshiva, but he, there was no animosity or anger. He only felt love and admiration for these great men, which says a lot about yeshiva's Ner Yisrael as a whole. On a different note, I wanted to share another interesting tidbit about Rabbi David Kranglis. His sefer is on Zeraim, which is not typically learned in the yeshivas. In the introduction to the sefer, he writes that he was worried that his learning would suffer and he would find it difficult to concentrate when he fled to Shanghai with the Mir Yeshiva. As a personal commitment to keep himself focused, he decided to study Zeraim and commit his chidushim to writing. This project gave him his chadshus and focused toil in Torah, even during such a difficult time in his life. He also writes that if any chidushim he writes are found in others' farm on Zeraim, in other svarim, that the reader should forgive him because he did not have access to many svarim on Zraim, if any. Another interesting facet to Rabbi David Kranglis is that he only agreed to be the mashkiach if he could also deliver a daily shear. He said that a mashkiach can only impact the Talmidim if they respect him as a Talmud Chacham, therefore he felt it necessary to not limit himself to Musar Shmuzin. Very, very, very interesting about Rabbi David Kranglis. And now we get back to Rav Shmuel Rizavsky. Now, even if you're a guy out there who thinks that you don't know about Rav Shmuel Rizavsky, you probably do anyway, because at some point in your life, either a shear you heard, or more likely a, 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 a uh, Rebbe who taught you, um, or Torah that you were taught was based on Rav Shmuel's Torah in some yeshiva that you were in at some point in your life, in some high school the Rebbe probably was uh, teaching you straight up Rip Shmuel's Torah without even admitting it, or maybe they did. Um, but his Torah has become so classic and so embedded that everyone has been exposed to it, whether uh, whether it's been identified as his or not. Um, so he's a dominant personality in the rebirth of the Torah world post-war in transmitting the Torah itself. Uh, many post-war rebirth stories revolve around builders of institutions, leaders, people like the Panavizharov or Baron Cutler, or in the Hasidic world, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Satmarov, the Ger Rebbe. Uh, Reb Shmuel was something else. He was incredibly influential and played a crucial role in the rebuilding of post-war through his teaching of Torah, through his Derech Halimud, that was arguably more influential and far-reaching than anyone else post-war in spreading Torah and teaching students. Um, and his Derech Halimut, his style of learning, is uh, pretty much uh, the most influential, maybe in recent years in the United States. Uh, the brisk style Derech Halimut has uh, gained in popularity, but definitely uh, earlier on, and for sure in, in Israel, um, Reb Shmuel was the dominant, uh, and his Torah is 
was the dominant Torah of the entire yeshiva world. Um, remember my Rabbi Rabashar Arieli, who was studying the Panavish Yeshiva by Rabbi Shmuel before he came to the mirror. He emphasized that, that he was, he created, the way he said it, the way Rabbi Shmuel said it was, he created the raid of the yeshiva world. He created the, the what they talked about in learning, the questions that they discussed, the uh, the, the ideas that was all um, formulated by Rabbi Shmuel Rozovsky. So there's a, like I said, a biography on him in Hebrew and English, and English is actually dedicated to his second wife, uh, Rebetzin Chana Esther Rozovsky. She was born in the Freedmen, a very uh, important family, very prestigious family. She was a very special woman. She was married to him only, in for, unfortunately, for only seven years before her uh, untimely passing. On her 50th birthday, the seven good years that Rabbi Shmuel would refer to, she herself never had any children, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we'll get back to the travails of Rabbi Shmuel's life uh, shortly. Rabbi Shmuel was born in Grudna. He didn't just study in the Grudna Yeshiva of Rabbi Shkup, He actually was born there. His father, Michal David Rezevsky, was one of the main rabbis in the town. He was uh, not, not officially the chief rabbi, but he served in somewhat of a capacity as the primary rabbi in uh, the Besden in the town. He was one of a team, but uh, he was one of the most uh, uh, central figures in the Grudna rabbinic. Grudna is actually quite a relatively large city in that area, not uh, um, not a little uh, shtetl. And Rabbi Michal Davidovsky passes away quite suddenly um, when Rabbi Shmuel was still a, a yeshiva bacher. He was in the Mir yeshiva at the time, and he comes back to Grodna as a result. Um, and there was, after Rabbi Michal David's passing, in fact, there was a community elections who would succeed him. It was a big, uh, big, uh, big shoes to fill. And eventually the community decided to appoint a new rabbi in his, in his stead to succeed uh, Rabbi Michal Davidovsky. But they also wanted to appoint one of his sons as as a dain, as a mite, so a tzedek, someone who would ask in, uh, uh, halachic questions as well. So it would be like kind of two positions filling uh, the, the father's position, one uh, a, a new appointee as a rabbi and also a son. question is, which son? Michal David Rizovsky had several sons. And here there was a bit of a dispute. The family, the Rizovsky family, wanted the oldest son, whose name was Rabbi Shua Heschel Rizovsky, um, his, he was also his father's right-hand man. They wanted him to be appointed. The community, including the main Rosh Yeshiva at the Grudny Yeshiva, where Shmuel was a student, uh, was, was Rabbi Shraga Feivel Hindus, who was Rabbi Shimon Shkup's son-in-law. So the community, the community rabbinate, community leadership, and, and also Rabbi Shraga Feivel Hindus, who was also involved in the community uh, leadership, they wanted the still young and single Rabbi Shmuel Rozovsky to be the rabbi. So here there's this dispute who would become the rabbi. Interestingly enough, the Rabbi Shmuel himself backed the family position that his brother, Rabbi Shul Heschel, should become the rabbi. Um, and Rabbi Yosef Rizovsky, a third brother, was the one who represented the family's uh, position when there was a, a Besden brought in, that was, uh, or they approached a Besden, rather, to arbitrate uh, this dispute. It was headed by Rabbi Chaim Grigensky, no less. Uh, and they decided in the family's favor um, and therefore, uh, uh, um, Yeshua Heschel Rozovsky was the one who was subsequently appointed to fill the father's position. Um, so, Reb, uh, um, uh, this saved Reb Shmuel's life, essentially. As he ended up moving to Palestine later on to avoid the draft. If he had had a rabbinical position, then the rabbinical position presumably would have granted him an exemption from the Polish uh, military draft as a clergy. Um, so, he, he um, this 
and, and then he would have been killed along with the rest of his family, as his brother and his, his rest of his family was. So the fact that he, he uh, did not get that position uh, uh, essentially saved his life. Um, he was very, very close with family. In fact, uh, I'm talking about here, he backed the family's uh, side against his own candidacy. So he was actually uh, quite, a, quite a family man. He was uh, close with his family members. He was, later, he was very, very close with his brother, Rebyeisev Rizovsky. They were both together in Petah Tikva. Rebyeisev Rizovsky remained in Petah Tikva. He passed away also quite young. Um, when Rebyeisev Rizovsky was, was sick and dying, uh, Reb Shmuel would visit him almost every day in the hospital. A student of Panavish Yeshiva would be waiting for him after he delivered his shear, and he would drive him over to the hospital. And he was, he was a widow, widower at the time. It was after his second wife had passed away, and he would go and take care of his brother, Rabbi Yosef, um, who was one of his last remaining family members and who, who died at a quite a young age. So Rabbi Shmuel would, was there at his side. He did have another uh, sister, a uh, sister who lived in Paris, in France. Uh, it seems that she was also alone. I didn't get the whole story of if she was married, she wasn't married, but it seems that she was also alone. And she once visited from, from Paris to and stayed by him for Pesach. Uh, and again, Rabbi Shmuel was a widower at the time, and Rabbi Shmuel went to pick her up from the airport and took her around for all the errands she needed throughout her stay. Uh, and again, like uh, he had lost most of his family during the war, and the, the ones that remained that he stayed very, uh, very close with. Speaking of the draft and the and trying to get out of the draft, so most yeshiva students at the time in in Poland got out of it by making making up uh, you know faking some sort of ailment, um, whatever it was. Um, Reb Shmuel got originally got a deferment for two years because of his eyesight issues, but eventually the Polish doctor examining him, the physician said it, that his eyesight is fine and he should be drafted, and which eventually caused him to flee. He had to get out of the country. And when asked later on why he didn't just make up an ailment that would have gotten him out of it, like most of the other yeshiva students were doing at the time, and he said, I could not bring myself to tell a lie. I, had, I, I, can't, I couldn't do anything except for to say the words of truth. And that was just, that's just my nature. And uh, that saved his life. This insistence on keeping to only the exact truth Again, saved his life because because of the draft, because he had told the truth, because he was eligible for the draft. He now had to uh, escape, and he was able to get a visa to uh, to Palestine, and uh, and therefore he wasn't in Poland when the war broke out. Several years later, um, he needed to get a visa, which wasn't a simple uh, task. He even asked Reb Chaim Gajinsky for assistance, who wrote a letter on his behalf. Um, and wrote, you know, some effusive praise for this promising young uh, scholar, uh, and uh, and uh, to, to to get him a visa. But eventually, he came through another venue, um, a uh, Rebruvin Katz, the rabbi in in Petach Tikva at the time, who had a who was also a very interesting personality, had a fascinating rabbinical career. He had been a rabbi in a town uh, near Grudna, which was how they knew the family, the, the, the Rizovskis knew Rebruven Katz. He had also been a rabbi in Bayonne. He lived in the United States uh, for a time. He was a rabbi there in, in New Jersey. And then he eventually moves to Israel, where he has a long, uh, decades-long rabbinical career in uh, in Petach Tikva. And he was also involved in the Lamja Petach Tikva Yeshiva, which I'll get to. So Rebruven Katz is also a, a very interesting uh, uh, personality. But speaking of how truth was such a distinct feature of Reb Shmuel Rizovsky's uh, way, approach and way of life, so an, an attendant, a student of his, who was a close attendant of his, related to me that um, 
when during his years that he was a widower, he tried to assist Rabbi Shmuel by by having him get out a little bit and and and, and you know, have him relax and get out and just because you know it was it was hard he had a difficult time so he once took him to in Israel there's a, there are separate beaches uh, you know uh, separate beaches for separate hours or separate beaches for men and women so he took him to early early in the morning before anyone was around he took him to the separate beach in in uh, Tel Aviv and uh, on one morning and he. Um, and he wanted to get past the the um, the guard at the gate to be able to drive him right up to the to the beach. So the guard said, "Who's there? Well, you can't go past it." So the guy said, "The the, the student said, who's driving?" He says, "What do you mean? I have the chief rabbi here with me. So you should and you should really ask for a bracha. You should ask him for a blessing. He's the chief rabbi." So there's the the guard there. Oh wow, the chief rabbi. He leans his head in and asks for a blessing, and Shmuel gives him a little. Blessing, and they are waved in to the to the so they could drive right up to the beach. So Shmuel turns to him as as they're driving through, and he says, What did you tell him? So he said, you know, and he heard what he said. He knew what he told him. He said, he said, he said, I told him the Rav Rashi, the chief rabbi. So he said, I'm not the chief rabbi. So he said, so the student says to him, Well, what do you mean? I didn't say where you're the chief rabbi. I didn't say you're a chief rabbi of here or of there. I said you're the chief rabbi. In my mind, you're the chief rabbi of Panaviz Yeshiva. That's enough for me. So Shmuel says to him, Well, what did the watchman think? What did the guard think? I'll tell you what he thought. He thought that I'm either, what you said the word chief rabbi to a simple Jew like that in Tel Aviv, secular Jew. It means, to him, it means one of two things. Either it means the chief rabbi of the state of Israel, or perhaps the Rav Rashi of Tel Aviv, the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. He definitely wasn't thinking the chief rabbi of Panavish. And truth is how it's interpreted by the one who you're saying it to. How did he hear it? How did his ears receive the information and perceive it? And if he perceived it in one way, and that's not the truth, then you told a lie. And he turns to him and says, You can never, ever tell a lie. And to him, it was interpreted as one way, and that's not true, and that's a lie. And be careful, and for the rest of your life, never allow yourself to do that. Do not ever tell a lie like that. Just, uh, he said, he said, he told me that when he told me this story, he told me it's ringing in his ears till today, what Rav said to him. Um, so either way, eventually Reuven Katz, uh, gets him and his close friend, Reb Tzvi Ratberg, who eventually becomes a Rashiva in Bnei Rak, also based mayor. He get them visas, they go to the Lamja uh, Yeshiva in Petach Tikva. He actually, it was a custom in the Grudna Yeshiva that uh, that the, anyone who was leaving, who was actually, they were moving away, they got the Maftir on their last Shabbos. That was the custom. In fact, it was Parshas Bamidbar, what we just laid this morning. I'm uh, recording this Moetzi Shabbos on Parshas Bamidbar, um, right before Shavuos, literally today, and in the Haftarah, it states uh, something about going and or or the or the, something. It mentions the words Petach Tikva, Pesach Tikva, and uh, Reb Shmuel himself saw this as a sign. He's going, heading to Petach Tikva because Reuven Katz got him the visas. See, so he left right right then, right after Shavuos, the holiday. He travels by boat to um, to Palestine to Eretz Yisrael. And he goes to the Lamja Petach Tikva Yeshiva. And Lamja Petach Tikva Yeshiva is, is a yeshiva that does not get enough historical attention. Why? Because the Slabatka Chavrin Yeshiva was the first, 
Lithuanian real yeshiva to establish themselves in Israel in the modern era, and they get all the credit and everyone talks about it. It's kind of like Larry Doby going, becoming the second uh, baseball player, in the Ameri- first one in the American League, but the second one in Major League Baseball to become an, an African-American to break the, the color line. And no one talks about Larry Doby. Everyone talks about Jackie Robinson. So it's the same idea with Lumjan. He doesn't get enough credit, but Lumjan is quite a story. Um, and the, open, the idea that they would open it, Blazer Shalev is the founder of, of, of Lamja in Poland, was living in, in Israel at the time, but it's not his initiative that found, that, that founds a branch there. It's really the initiative of Yechil Mordechai Gordon, the uh, Rashiva in Lamja there, and then he ends up in America, and Rabbi Shua Zeligrach, the Rashiva in, in Lamja, stays in Lamja and gets killed. And so, so Reuven Katz, uh, um, and, and it, it, who's the Rav of Petach Tikva is involved, and Blazer Shulevitz until his passing is involved, and Rebichil Mordechai Gordon is involved, and there's this small little branch of Lamja, and they're building up this, and it's, and it is small, it's only 30, 40 students when Rebbe Shmuel arrives there. But later, so many famous people studied there, Moshe Shmuel Shapiro, and uh, Yibadul Chaim Rav Chaim Kanievsky and others, they were students at the Lamja Yeshiva, many, many others, a lot of really uh, impressive uh, alumni of the Lamja Petach Tikvi Yeshiva. And the whole decision to open it and who taught there and and uh, a lot of a lot of very impressive people who taught there. And um, But uh, with all that, it was still in its embryonic stages and Shmuel, for Rav Shmuel it was a kind of even depressing. It was very hard for him to acclimate. He had come from Grudna, come from Mir, and here is this Young, younger students, small, not on a high level. It was 30, 40, uh, the whole uh, students, the whole yeshiva at the time. But what kept him going was that the fact that it was the mashgiach at the time was Rebchatzka Levenstein, who had moved from Mir, where he didn't have any official position. And, uh, and the, uh, he had once upon a time had an official position there and would eventually, again, later have a position there. But at the mean, at the time he didn't have any position. So he was hired to be the mashgiach in the Lamja Petach Yeshiva, and he moves with his family to Israel. And um, and um, and he wanted to build this as a Musar Yeshiva, Reb Chatzkel, very intense and very demanding and very close. It was a very intense relationship with his students there, and he really was trying and made a tremendous effort to build up Lamja at the time, and Reb Shmuel became very close with him. But he, Reb Chatzkel, very shortly after Reb Shmuel arrived, Reb Chatzkel moved back. What happened? In uh, Shortly after Shavuos of, of, uh, of 1936, um, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, the famed and legendary Mashkiach of the Mir Yeshiva in Poland, passed away. And uh, there was a big question who would be the Mashkiach uh, after Rabbi Rucham's passing, which is a great story in itself, a really a mere story, nothing to do with Reb Shmuel Rezovsky's life. But um, it ended up being quite a quite a big dispute, and um, first they thought that maybe that Reb Simcha Zisalavavitz, Reb Rucham's son, would become the Mashgiach, but he was still young and he was still single. I didn't think it would be the right time. Reb Leizidel thought of bringing his Reb Leizidel Finkel tried thought of bringing his son Reb Chaim Zev Finkel to be the Mashgiach, and he actually did bring him for a very short time. It did not work out at all. They did not accept him, and of course, you're filling the shoes of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, who was such a legend in his own time, and his students were simply in awe of him, and he was so charismatic and so influential in Musser and building up Musser and, and educating them, and such a master educator. So it was very hard shoes to fill, and it was a very sensitive issue, and there was 
kind of a dispute between the students and the administration about who would be replacing Rebbe, Rebbe Rucham and Rebbe Chaskel Levenstein was kind of brought in, and this is just really to make a long story short and not get into all the gory details, that Rebbe Chaskel was brought in as a compromise candidate and he would be contracted for only several years. He would eventually he stayed much longer than that because the, when his when his years were up, the yeshiva was on its way to Shanghai. So he stayed with them and he became the uh, legendary leader of the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai and then beyond, also in America and, and back in Israel when they reestablished themselves in Yerushalayim and then eventually moves to Panovich, um, which is another story. Um, but uh, the story about Rechaz Levinstein's life is also a great uh, story. But uh, he's brought in for several years to kind of you know. Till things uh, play out, and Rukhatskul was pretty much universally respected on all sides and was seen as someone who could somewhat replace what uh, Rabbi Rucham was. And um, we can we can dis- discuss that further at, at another opportunity. So now Rabbi Shmuel is left alone. One person who kept him going and who he was close with and who really inspired him and educated and gave him, you know, really had an impact on him in, in Lamja was now gone. There was Rebellion Dushnitzer was also there. It was a Radin student who was sort of the Mashkirch there. Later on, Rababa Grossbard became uh, 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 he was um, a, a, a there. He was a, a student of Kelm, also a student of Rabbi Lubavitz. And uh, eventually, Rabbi Shmuel becomes something of a Rebbe in Lamja, delivering Chaburas. And uh, to the younger students, he already then he was known for his clarity, for his profundity, and his style. Of, of learning were very influential, and there are some who were his students already at Lamja prior to his days at uh, at Panavish. So, just later on in his life, uh, get back, getting to his his uh, his time when he was sick towards the end of his life, skipping over most of his life, and we'll hopefully get back to the rest of his illustrious career in Panavish at another time. And also, can read uh, the article. We have quite a bit on that in in the magazine, in Mishpacha magazine. Um, but I just heard this story uh, just um, shortly before I recorded this, um, that it, when he was in Boston for treatments, uh, when he had his his advanced lung cancer and he went to Boston, so he was waiting in the waiting room in the clinic and the nurse, a non-Jewish nurse, calls him in and and says in the waiting room, Rozovsky Shmuel, Rozovsky Shmuel, is he here? And he turns to the person next to him and he says, no matter what you accomplished in life, at the end of the day, you're still just Rezovsky Shmuel. No matter how much you did in your life, you're just Rezovsky Shmuel. Very uh, powerful statement. He had a very difficult life. His father passed away suddenly and he wasn't terribly old. He had the Polish army drafts. He had to run away and leave his family. Much of his family was later wiped out in the war. He was married to the daughter of Ratsi Pesach Frank, and that marriage ended in divorce. All his kids were from his first marriage, and that kind of broke up the family. Um, with that divorce, and then um, he was alone, and then he married his second wife, and she passed away after only seven years, and she was quite young. And then at the peak of his strength, and the peak of his career, he they discover advanced lung cancer with very low, very bad prognosis and very low uh, chances of survival, which, which uh, you know, he didn't, didn't live that long afterwards, and he had to go to the United States for treatments, and he passes away shortly uh, after. So he had a very challenging and difficult life, and therefore it makes his accomplishments uh, all the more incredible. He he was, besides for his teaching of Torah, he was an amazing person. He was a sensitivity, and his modesty, and his, his, his even his humor were such uh, such uh, had had such a, a, an influence on those around him as well. He wanted his close student to accompany him to the United States when he went for his treatments, but he felt bad. 
He said, I steal him from his wife too often as it is. I'm uncomfortable asking her permission for him to accompany me to, 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 on my trip. So someone else asked instead. But that was his uh, sensitivity. Um, that, that attendant of his, um, he, he uh, was, was sitting with Rav Shmuel after one of his treatments. And Rav Shmuel says to him and says in Yiddish, they converse in Yiddish, he said, tell the nurse, even the non-Jewish nurse there in Boston, that I greatly appreciate all that she's doing for me. And he said, Ich bin nispoil. I'm very nispoil. I'm very amazed from her dedication, and I wanted to express my deepest thanks and appreciation for everything. So he goes out to the nurse, and he didn't know what to say, because he has to say it in English. He had no idea to say what what Shmuel wanted him to say in how to articulate it in English. So Shmuel was a perfectionist. He knew Shmuel wanted him to say it exactly. So he tried his best. He went to the nurse, and he said, uh, nurse, and she says, yes, yes, what does the rabbi need? And he said, no, 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 wait. Uh, the rabbi doesn't need anything. He said, uh, the rabbi... Uh, you very good, uh, and she says, "Oh, okay, okay." And so he decided she understood, and he went back to Reb Shmuel's room. And Reb Shmuel says to him, "Did you tell her thank you? What I what I told you to tell her?" He says, "Yes." So he says, "What did you say?" So he said, "I said to the I said that the Rosh Hashiva thanks her for her dedication and help. That there's no words to thank her." Reb Shmuel was a perfectionist. He was very exact. He saw everything in depth, and he wanted everything to be exactly. So he says, tell me exactly the words you said to her in English. Now he's getting nervous because he didn't say exactly what Rav Shmuel said. So he puts on an American accent and he thought that would fool Rav Shmuel. And he says, the rabbi says, thank you very much. And he has very mispalation from you. He was trying to anglicize the word nispoil, which is the word Rav Shmuel specifically used for him to relay to the nurse. Nurse, and he had no idea how to translate nispoil into English, so he made up the word. He said, he, he said to her, Shmuel, I said to her, he has very mispoilation from you. So he says, say that again. So he said, I said it again. So Shmuel says to me, let's get out of here before they throw us both out of here. If you said that to her, they're throwing us out because there's no such word in the English language. I can tell that's not English. And, uh, and, and who knows what that really means and, and what, how she interpreted it. So it became a joke of the trip. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and he said every time they saw that nurse, they would say the mispiolation is here. And he said, how in the world, Shmuel asked him, he said, how in the world did you come up with that word? You said, you said, you said, you, I, you, you, so he said, you sent me to say something in English. I had no idea what to say, so I made it up. So he said, if that's the English word, you came up with, and you really better should work on your English, because uh, that does not sound like English at all. He was a very, very down-to-earth person. Um, he was different, different than many of the other Rosh Yeshiva of his day. He was, he liked to dress perfectly neatly and well. He was, you know, a bit more down-to-earth and open. Uh, you know, he's a student of Rav Shmuel, or of Rav Shimon Shkup, which you know says says uh, says something about him also as well. And especially the fact that his total removal from any political affiliation. He hated politics. He was invited many times to join, to speak, to have an affiliation, to be the featured speaker at some of these political rallies and events. He never did it. He never spoke publicly aside from his shir. He, he, and still the fact that living in B'nai Brak and hating politics and still being able to be popular says a lot about him. To be an influential Magid Shir in Panavish and a Rosh Hashiva. I don't know. That's 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 
that's pretty much the highest uh, praise and, and uh, accolade that you can ever say about him. He saw himself as a teacher of Torah and nothing else. Um, he, um, my Rabbi Rabashar Yehli said, again, like he said, he was in his shir uh, in, in Panovish, he told me that uh, that he, he, he loved his shir, the clarity and the, the style. So I said, so, you know, were you upset to leave? He says, no, his father, Rabashar's father, had told him that he should go to the mirror. So, uh, so he left. I said he had to convince you. You know, you're, you're leaving Rav Shmuel's shir. So he looks at me. This is more of a story about Rav Asher, not less about Rav Shmuel. He he says to me, he says, in my day, your generation, maybe a father has to convince you. He said, in my days, your father says something, you do it. He doesn't convince you. Who are you? Who? What do you need to be convinced for? If your father tells you something, then you do it. So I left Rav Shmuel's shir. It didn't matter what I thought. It mattered what my father thought was best for me. Either way, getting back to Reb Shmuel and his being as a teacher of Torah, he said in his dying days, Reb Shmuel Rezovsky said, I don't want them to deliver any haspedim, any eulogies for me. But if they do insist, then the only thing that they should say is that I was a marbitz Torah, that I taught Torah to others. That is the only praise I ever want. So that was uh, Reb Shmuel Rezovsky. This is Yehuda Geber, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and uh, anything else. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.